Hey there, Karen here, anthropologist, historical archaeologist, and wannabe time traveler. Welcome back to Working Over Time, the podcast that examines society through the lens of the work we do as human beings, over time and across cultures. You may have joined our visit to Shakespeare's Globe Theatre under the direction of actor and educator Clive Greenfield. And if not, you can find that in our catalog. On today's show, we're revisiting the world of theater, but this time the setting is medieval, and we're talking with actor and theater historian Kyle A. Thomas. We'll explore theater as a pervasive cultural force in the Middle Ages, a generally misunderstood period of history that is in some ways a lot more like the modern world than you might have thought. Along the way, we'll encounter concepts and identities that are all too familiar to us today, beginning with influencers, as well as a lot less sober piety than you might expect from religious plays written and performed in the so-called Age of Faith. Turns out that modern theater owes much to these peculiar dramas of old. All right, without much further ado, let's get us to a stage. Yeah, Shakespeare, wordplay kind of bad, but I couldn't resist. Today, my guest is Kyle A. Thomas, actor and theater historian. Kyle is an actor, director, and theater historian, currently working as an assistant professor of theater at Missouri State University, where his research focuses on postmodern approaches to performing historical drama, specifically plays of the European Middle Ages. He also serves as editor-in-chief for the journal Romard, research on medieval and renaissance drama, and has a soon-to-be-released book and new Latin edition of the 12th century play about the Antichrist, with an accompanying English translation by Carol Symes. Kyle, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. So this is exciting, because I think it's really tempting to to think of the medieval period as long ago and far away and really irrelevant and kind of flat and boring and all about, you know, let's be honest, religion, um, one particular religion, Christianity. Um, and, and yet the little bit of, um, of insight I've been able to get so far into your work suggests something a lot more dynamic and relevant. So I'm really thrilled that you've taken time to sit down and talk to us about it today. Well, this is my favorite topic, and I'm so glad that you invited me to come on and discuss this, because you're absolutely right. We have this idea, I think, that exists of this period in European history being called the Dark Ages, and this this sense that everybody kind of lost any sense of learning and knowledge and artistic exploit, and it was it was rough, and people died all of the time, and it was folks covered in mud and, and just no fun at all. Uh, and one of the fun things about being a historian of theater for this period is that you actually begin to explore these very specific ways in which communities and individuals had fun. They played around. They told funny stories, even if they were, you know, Bible stories or something like that. They tried to make them as as uh, fun and enjoyable for both the actors and players as well as audiences as they could. So I think that th this is an excellent avenue into chipping away at that, that idea of this period being a, a period of lost knowledge, this, the so-called dark ages. 
Yeah, absolutely. And and that's that's actually a really interesting topic to me as an historian. And and I I hope later on in our conversation we can, you know, kind of um, unpack that a little bit. You know, that there is, of course, the famous Italian Renaissance of the 14th and 15th centuries and 16th century that we, we all know about, you know, but there were a lot of amazing. Um, you know, uh, there's a fluorescence of culture and history uh, in the long 12th century, as, yes. I, as I know it's been called. So, so this is going to be great. All right. So let's, let's get that bit of context that our listeners need to, um, to really make the most of this conversation. And tell us, please, a oh, little bit of what we call the 101. Why and how did the craft of theater emerge in the form that it did in medieval Europe? That's such a great question and asked so well. The general history of theater in the Middle Ages has been that it disappears after the Roman imperial period, the, you know, the classical period of late, of late antiquity. And that we have this period where there's very little theatrical activity. There's, in fact, a lot of documentation of authorities, both uh, church authorities and lay authorities, coming out and explaining that we shouldn't be doing theater. Theater, stop all this acting. You people who are actors, you're outlawed from our towns and our, our society and, and ostracized in different ways. And historians in the past have taken that to mean that, well, there must not have been a lot of theater going on. People weren't performing like they used to, particularly during the classical period. And the fact is, and, and I took a lot of this from my, um, from my uh, graduate advisor, that the, this period is actually full of theatrical activity because why else would you need to continue to create documents and statements and official records that talk about how we shouldn't be doing all of this theater? If yeah, no, if no yeah, one's doing exactly. theater, if it ain't it, a problem, you don't have to stop it. <laughs> exactly. So just because the problem is we don't have a ton of evidence in terms of like archaeological theatrical structures like we see in the Greek and the Roman period. And then afterwards in the early modern era, where in places like London, you have these big theatrical spaces being built. We're you know very familiar with Shakespeare's Globe and the modern recreation of it today that still sits on the South Bank. And, and those kind of become the iconographic uh, identifiers of an active theater culture in those particular parts of the world in those places in time. And we don't really see that in the Middle Ages. And so scholars and historians have often kind of wrestled with how much theatrical activity is going on in this time period and exactly in what form and shape uh, it might have been performed because we just don't have any evidence of actual permanent theater structures being built. But that's why I love this topic because it's it the argument that I make is that theater is actually much more ubiquitous in this time period and any place at any moment can be transformed into a theatrical space uh, based upon whatever activity is going on there and and the ubiquitousness of performance as a means of social uh, connection of social, making one's identity well known to a larger public, to doing entertainment, to religious ceremony, and all those sorts of things. Theatricality is is the, well, I should say the Middle Ages are soaked in theatricality. The Middle Ages are soaked in theatricality. I love that phrase so much. I had to repeat it. Have you trademarked that? I need to. No, I, but it's it's. I'm putting my stamp on it now. 
you got it. It sets me up for for the next question that I, I wanted to ask you about contextualizing this discussion for us, which is, you know, what characterizes this pre-modern theater that you see in the Middle Ages? And how does it compare to modern or contemporary theater? I think one of the biggest things is that theater in this time period is really about community. And we see this in many, many forms. We see this in traveling um, itinerant types of theater groups. And these are individuals who are, and, and, and these are the folks who are largely responsible for, or, or the targets of these uh, proscriptive treatments of theater. That these itinerant individuals who travel around Western and Central Europe and they go from town to town and from court to court and from monastery to monastery and place to place doing different performances of all kinds of types of work. Everything from uh, the type of, of comedic physical comedy that was that has been a, a feature of European drama and theater for centuries to juggling acts, to acrobatic acts, to all kinds of things that they can use to draw in an audience, make a little money, spend a little time where they need to to settle down and then move on to the next place. And these individuals kind of threaten a lot of the authorities and power structures in different places across Europe. And so you do see particularly lay authorities and, and some ecclesiastical authorities coming out and saying, hey, we, we outlaw this because it's not necessarily about the act itself. It's not about theater or acting itself as much as it is about individuals who are outside of the law. We use the term outlaw today to mean someone who may have committed a crime and is therefore wanted by the authorities to be able to brought in and, and, and uh, stand judgment for those, those alleged crimes. But back in this period, the term outlaw meant just outside of the law. And the law was usually within uh, the authoritative state in some geographical construction. So we're talking about a city. We're talking about a, a, a kind of church hierarchy to some degree. If you're looking at monasteries or monastic communities or cathedrals and cathedral schools and cathedral chapters, things like that. They're outside of the, the purview of some secular or ecclesiastical authority. And so they represent, and, and the things that they can perform often represent a threat to those authorities at times. And so you have these prescriptive treatments of those individuals and the content that they do. But at the same time, you've, so you've got communities of individuals who are traveling around Europe in an itinerant way doing these kinds of things, but you also have uh, these communities that I've mentioned, like, for example, monastic communities. I do a lot of research on monasticism in the central part of the Middle Ages, and you see these communities, particularly monastic communities, using theater, drama, performance as a way to solidify their identity. One of the, the particular monasteries that I've spent a lot of time with is a, is a Benedictine monastery in a little town in southern Bavaria called Tegernsee. And in this town, there was a, since the early Middle Ages, since about the ninth or eighth or ninth century, uh, a monastery there that had been established. And it was an imperial, it was made to be an imperial monastery. So it was overseen by the Holy Roman Emperor. And in the 12th century, this monastery either produces or reinscribes this play that, that you mentioned at the top of this, the play about the Antichrist, the Ludus de Antichristo. 
And, you know, it's very much an eschatological play. It's meant to explain the end of the world and how that's going to come about and what it's going to look like and, and the people who are going to be at the center of it. But the action of this play, particularly the acting of this play, is done to give the monastic individual, the, the members of that community, a chance to really practice the comportment of being a monk from Tegansi, that a Tegansi monk knows how to speak in these ways. So there's a lot of stylistic rhetoric that is written into this play that are where there are announcements given and there are kings who speak the way they speak and there are ambassadors moving between different kings and countries and, and, and political authorities around the world. And they are having to comport themselves in ways that relate to a very real world aspect of how one might comport themselves in front of an actual uh, uh, secular authority, a duke, a lord, a knight, even the emperor himself. And so you have this community of individuals who are using theater and theatrical performance as a way to imbue within their individual members of their community a sense of what it is to actually be a monk from Tegansi. And so, especially in this that particular part of Europe in a, in a time like the 12th century, you mentioned this term that, that historians have used in the past, the 12th century Renaissance. And we see all of these kind of communities around Europe at this time period, both monastic communities, this new thing called the cathedral school. You have the beginnings of universities developing in places like Italy and in England and in France. And you have um, these other types of, of fraternities, confraternities, these kind of guilds that are beginning to take shape as well within some of the more urban centers of Europe where trade and mercantilism is a much stronger part of their economy. But all of these different groups have in some way theater connected with them. So when we're talking about acting as a profession or acting as, as a job and as labor, it's very much a part of the kind of toolbox of labor that so many of these groups use to both keep their communities going and to promote the interests and ideas of their community, but also to establish a wider, more public identity within the kind of broader communities that they participate in. That's really powerful, actually. I, I, you know, you're, you're good at these phrases that are, that are really <laughs> good. I mean, like toolbox <laughs> of labor, I, again, it's just not something that I would have maybe immediately thought of as an accurate description of medieval theater. So I'm really excited to unpack that a little bit too, you know, particularly as our initial focus, at least in the conversation, is going to be the practitioner of theater, the, the actors themselves in this time period. So, so that's fantastic. Thank, thank you so much. That's a great introduction. Um, are we going to focus on any particular geographic area within Europe today? I think the most of the documentation about these kinds of things in this period come from the from what we call traditionally called Western Europe or Central Europe. So modern day countries like Spain, France, Belgium, the Netherlands, the United Kingdom, Germany, Italy, and a few other outlying areas as well. That's that's predominantly the kind of documentary record, or at least the location of a lot of documentary records that I deal with. It's a lot of theater. I can't wait. Yes, <laughs> it's exciting. As I understand it, there is an element of theater which is historic, known as dramaturgy. Yes. Is that at all involved in the work that you do, Kyle? 
Oh, absolutely. So dramaturgy is a great term that we use in professional theater today. It's actually a position. Uh, some A lot of people who work in professional theater are dramaturgs. These are individuals who understand and, and study the relationship between textual drama, so your scripts, and how to transform that text into a performance. And these are the individuals who tend to who help a director, help a, a team of, of collaborators understand a lot of the contexts within which a play is working. So for example, as a modern example, uh, some people might be familiar with Arthur Miller's play, The Crucible. And one of the kind of key aspects of a play like The Crucible is that Miller really wrote this play in response to McCarthyism in the middle of the 20th century. Basically, he's using a, a metaphor, the, the idea of a witch hunt, to explain what is going on within the political echelons of the United States at that particular period in which he wrote that play. So a dramaturg is going to come along and help a production team understand better why that's important, how to build that into the performance and make it a part of what they're doing with this play that is set in Salem, Massachusetts in the 17th century, but yet is about this um, kind of rooting out of political dissidents in the 20th century. And it may be performed in 2021. And so you kind of have to, you have to navigate all these contexts and these kind of historical distances and those yeah, sorts of really things. It's really complicated and it's, intertwined. It, yeah, it's a big job. So when we look at when, but it's really advantageous to have that skill set because when we look at uh, plays from the Middle Ages, essentially what we're asking is what are the things that are working upon a playwright or a scribe who is writing this down? And I think I should probably clarify too that we don't have a lot of known playwrights from this time period, which has also been kind of a problem historically because we love to attach plays to playwrights and talk about the way a particular playwright writes their drama. But in the Middle Ages, most of the plays that we have are anonymous. There are a few oh, known- anonymous, so oh, prolific anonymous yes. <laughs> in all time periods, especially they're, pre-modern. Yeah, they're the, the greatest playwright, the most prolific playwright of all time, anonymous, yes. Oh, I have to say that's, that's what archeologists deal with all the oh, time. No. They're always anonymous. It's quite sad. Yes, so dramaturgy gives us a way to what, I, there's a great book that uh, discuss the dramaturgy is called Dramaturgy and Performance. Uh, and it's by Kathy Turner and Senna Berndt. And one of the things that they discuss that I really like, and I've kind of tried to build into my own practice is that dramaturgy is a way to excavate a works architecture. So it kind of, there's your archeology span kind of connection there. Love that, it. You did that for me. <laughs> very I much so. I knew you would be a great guest. <laughs> That's what we're doing though. We're excavating the drama out of this. How did this get built? What was influencing it? What was working upon it? We talk a lot about the liturgy, for example, in the middle ages. And, and there's this actual thing called liturgical drama. And there, there's a lot of loadedness about that that we can get into here shortly if you like. But the big thing about dramaturgy is that it, it asks us, it forces us to use a lens that we can explain, okay, how is liturgical performance, the, the worshipful kind of ceremonial aspects of Christian uh, belief and Christian practice, how is that acting upon 
this particular, you know, a particular play from this time period that might include a liturgy? Or how might the Bible stories that are familiar to so many people in this time period be used as an actual vehicle to talk about issues going on within a community, issues about gender, issues about labor, even like theological uh, ideas that are coming out of some of the most kind of uh, uh, big learned university-like communities. So dramaturgy is an excellent means of excavating and examining these plays and not only the plays themselves, but the potential theatrical practices that surround the play and gives us a little, opens the window a little bit more on, on a particular community and the way that they did theater, the, the actors and how they did their jobs. I don't know about you, but I'm ready to dive right in. Um, I would say on stage behind the curtain, but from what you've said, we are more likely in this time period to have had what sounds like the pre-modern version of a pop-up street performance or in a church or something like yeah, that. So yeah. let's let's just alight, if we may, amidst the group of players collected and maybe try to give us an idea to the extent it's possible to, you know, reconstitute the beginning of a typical day for one of these people. So the great thing is that most people in the Middle Ages would have, in the course of their day, encountered some kind of performance. Or at the very least, uh, throughout the year, there were certainly aspects of their lives that were granted a sense of kind of meaningfulness or fun and enjoyment and pleasure thanks to performance. And I'm going to focus a little bit here on some of the early medieval communities that begin to spring up outside of towns and villages, and those are in monasteries. And in your typical day, especially if you're a young monastic individual, perhaps you've come to this monastery or your family has brought you to this monastery so that you can get educated. These are the earliest okay. schools. You know, we're talking about cloister schools and those sorts of things. And you are your day is actually very detailed. You have uh, you have a lot of things that you have, your day is very scripted for you, really, from the very beginning that you get up, even what, you know, what you get, what time you get up, what kind of prayers that you say, what uh, ceremonial and ritual practices you participate in are all portioned out throughout the day in various different chunks. And then you have some work and some time that you spend uh, doing activities that, that help keep the community going, be it um, working in a garden or, um, you know, organizing certain documents and records or even being a scribe. You sit down and you copy everything out from a book that, that you've borrowed from another monastery. But at some point in the day, there are two things that you're going to be participating in, particularly if you're in the cloister school. The first are the actual ceremonies, the liturgical practices of the day. These are ritualistic in a way. They are repeated. They are repeatable. They're easy to learn. But depending on the time of the year and depending on the time of the day, even, you are going to be doing different types of ceremonies and you're going to participate in different ways. In some contexts, you might be what we would consider kind of the audience. You are there uh, as a as a you know person to kind of participate in this worship, but you might also play a much more central role. You might be in the choir, you might be a cantor, you might be a part of the the retinue that that goes with a bishop or an abbot and leads the mass or something like that at a certain part of the day or a certain time of the year. So you're very much involved in performance throughout your day and throughout your life throughout the year, and. The other type of 
theatricality that you're going to encounter that's much more tied to this kind of way that we think about drama and theater today is in the school. There's a great example of this in uh, from, from Tegernsey, as I was just mentioning a, go, a moment ago. There's a teacher by, whose name was Fromund, and he lived in the 11th century, and he was the leader of the cloister school. So he was the scholasticus, the, the, the teacher, the, the leader, the, 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 the guy that you go to to learn all about aspects of what we call the quadrivium, these four parts of, of learning that were really, that were, um, that made up kind of the core of education at this time period, and the trivium, which are these three other components that when put together, give you what we call today, the liberal arts. So as you're learning about music and you're learning about rhetoric and you're learning about astronomy and mathematics, you are learning about them through means of performance. And Fromund in particular talks about how he has the boys in his classroom playing roles. They're playing parts. They are um, imitating animals and jumping around. And he's making a tail like with his belt to entertain his students so that they can have a good time and enjoy what it is that they're learning about. One of the first playwrights that we have, in fact, the first named female playwright in all of European history that we know of was a woman named Protzfeet of Gandersheim. And she was in this monastic, this cloistered community at Gandersheim. And she wrote a, a corpus of six plays. These are not, yeah, they're not liturgical plays. They are actual full length dramas that were based upon the models of Roman comic playwrights like Terence and Plautus. And so she's taking these Roman comedies, which she's read, which she knows, which other individuals in her monastery know about, and which I should mention are ubiquitous across Europe. Terence and Plautus especially were very, very popular uh, playwrights and, and many individuals across early medieval Europe would have read and known their work. So she's studying these plays of these Roman comic playwrights and she's turning these comic models into plays about Christian saints and Christian stories. In fact, many of her plays feature female figures as the protagonists. But all of this is done, in fact, one of the, one of the particular plays that I've been studying is a play called Paphnutius, which is based on the uh, eponymous uh, saint, Saint Paphnutius of Antioch, a very early Christian father, many, many centuries before Hrotsvit comes along in the 10th century, and Fromund as well. And Hotsfeet is writing this play about Paphnutius as if he is a teacher. He's sitting before his disciples and he's explaining the, the divine harmony of the universe. He's explaining cosmology to his students. And it's done all in this play. And he relates it to music, like that there are uh, intervals and harmonic resonance that occurs in the universe. And these are mapped and we can actually hear them when we perform music. So when we hear uh, certain intervals and harmonies between different notes, they're representative of the divine harmony that is evident in the rest of the world. And so you get a sense both in this play itself, but the, what the play is communicating and what Protzfeet understands and what Fromund is doing in his monastery is that the world is performing God's truth. The world is performing theological and cosmological truths at all times. And so it does a person justice. It, it is a good Christian effort to be able to figure out and better understand, be a, basically be a good audience member and see where it is that God is revealing himself within the world through these various elements of performance. You have this backed up as well by 
a later female playwright um, that uh, uh, many folks may be known of, Hildegard, they may know of, Hildegard of Bingen, who wrote a play called the Ordo Virtutum, the service of the virtues. And in it, the you have these allegorical virtues, all, all fe female figures, and at the center, they're all dealing with the devil. And all of the women in this play, all the virtues sing. They sing all of their parts. So it's like great musical. Uh, a lot of early drama is, is really musical. And we, we forget that because we don't have a lot of music, unfortunately. Luckily, we do for Order of Virtutum. That does survive. But you also have this antagonist character, the devil. And he never sings. He only I believe the play script says something like he grunts and he groans and he speaks in these really harsh and heavy tones because the devil cannot make divine sounds and music is a divine sound. Oh. So there's your, that's your, so your dramaturgy is telling you that all the folks and, and, and Hildegard's writing in the 12th century, Fromund and Rothfeld are writing in the 10th century. So it, all within this period, the dramaturgy tells us that you have people who are learning how to be, who are learning how to discern performance in ways that reveal God's truth and God's uh, divine presence within the world. And all of that is found in performance. So when students, a young person at a cloister school is going through his or her day, they are performing within the liturgy and performing within the worshipful activities of that day as a means to kind of connect themselves both to their community, but also to their beliefs. And then at the same time, you're learning about performance because you need to understand that in every aspect of life, you have to perform a certain role and do it in a way that comports with the divine understanding of your role in society and in the world and as a Christian individual. And so if a, as you grow up and you move on, maybe you, you stay, you, you, you dedicate yourself to that monastic community and you stay there, or you become, for example, a courtier. You, you enter the court of, uh, of a bishop or of a duke or of even say like a king or an emperor, and you're there to record things that are going on, but you're also there to serve as a representative of that authority. And so to do that well, you have to know how to play your part. You have to know how to stand, speak with authority, have presence in front of other individuals, particularly other authorities that may exist in the world that your, your Lord may be wanting to uh, establish relations with. You have to be quick on your feet, think fast, you have to know Latin. And so all of these things are learned basically through the skills of acting. So many, many people in the course of their education and in the course of their lives would learn the skills of acting in order to better do the work that they set out to do later on in their life. Wow. You know, I have to say, just listening to all of this, I'm, I'm a little bit blown away at, at what, I, I mean, honestly, the easiest term I could apply to it is the sort of modernity of this approach, not just to theater, but to education. Yes. Right. You know, it's, it's all of these catchwords that we see in cutting edge pedagogical theory these days, it's holistic, it's engaging. It's, I mean, for goodness sake, it's student-centered. Yes, right? exactly, exactly. <laughs> it's and actually quite amazing. You have all of these companies out there today who are discussing the type of people that they wanna hire in their corporate structures. And one of the key things that they always indicate is something like creativity. Creativity, problem solving, working in a group. 
that's all theater. That's all theatrical yeah. training. So, you know, young people who study acting or study theater learn all of that kind of stuff and really can apply those skills and, and those abilities to whatever job they end up doing in their life. Very medieval, very, very medieval. That's, uh, it's phenomenal. And, yes. I, you know, and, and I, I, what I have to wonder too is how the experience you're describing to me, for example, in these monastic schools, absolutely fascinating, could, could be model reading, as I said, for, for the, the most pr progressive educators working today. But how did that relate to the role of these itinerant actors moving through um, societies in the way that you described earlier? Were, were they well sort of well-regarded uh, by society at large for having mastered this art of acting in the way they did? Well, at first, not so much. And I don't know, it's hard to say just how much intersection there may have been, say, between a monastic cloister school and a group of itinerant players, but there certainly were. You do have um, particular authorities, uh, what comes to mind is a, is a um, individual named Alcyon of York, and he served in the court of Charlemagne and other authorities across. He was he would spend time in the courts of, of many ecclesiastical and lay authorities across Europe, a very, very learned individual, very well-respected individual. And he talks about how certain kings and, and, and figures that he's spending some time with allow these dancers and players to come into their courts and do silly songs and rivaled comedies and uh, uh, various kinds of performances. And he doesn't like it. He's, he's very clear that he doesn't like it. So that, that there's some evidence of individuals speaking out against these kind of itinerant groups who travel around Europe and do these kinds of performances. But by the time you get into the later centuries of the Middle Ages, so we're talking, you know, about the 12th century is when it begins, but all the way through the 13th and 14th centuries, you begin to see itinerant ideas of performance. So the, the model of itinerant players begin to actually become a little bit more formalized in these groups called troubadours or in, in, in the kind of French speaking realms, or you have the minnesänger of, of the German speaking realms, um, or these mummers of English speaking, you know, a little bit later English speaking realms as well. And they are, many of them are itinerant, sure, but they're also connected to courts. They're very much ah, a part okay. of, of courtly life. And so they kind of have this feeling of being the itinerant musical guy. I think we've seen this probably in a, a film like Monty Python, Search for the Holy Grail. <laughs> you've, got, you've got the guy going along with Sir Robin and singing the song about brave or brave, brave Sir Robin and changes to he, he swiftly ran away and all that kind of stuff. And there's historical precedent for that. Those, those individuals are modeling themselves in kind of an itinerant style, but they're not really traveling from community to community and existing outside of the law. They are very much a part of the courts and they attach themselves to certain figures and courtly uh, uh, political authorities and ecclesiastical authorities across Europe and they entertain and they participate in the courtly life. They, they bring a lot to that life in this time period. And it's considered somewhat fashionable, but also kind of a marker of 
of status and identity to be able to have someone in your employ who does those kinds of things. And so you see figures. Yeah, around- you can put on a great show, a better show exactly. than, than the king in the next kingdom. <laughs> exactly. And that's the thing. It becomes a big perform. Like how big a show can you do? How entertaining, how exciting can your show be compared to that person over in that realm or that king over on that in that nation? Those sorts of things. So it's it's they become a really important aspect of courtly life within the latter part of the Middle Ages, the Central Middle Ages and later as well. And that's where you begin to see these intersections between the monastic and 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 ecclesiastical cultures of, of medieval Europe really coming into contact with the courtly culture as well. And the shift from a, a very theologically Christological centered type of performance that you would have seen in things like liturgical drama, liturgical plays, or monastic plays, even within cloister schools. And now they're becoming more secular. Their themes, their themes are becoming okay. about love. And we, we have a very rosy picture of, of troubadours and minazenga, but really they were singing about sexual things, erotic content. Um, they were making fun of people. They were uh, uh, putting jabs in at other figures and authorities and historical individuals across Europe. And so there was a bit of a, a tongue in cheek and, and nastiness to it, but it was all packaged in this fun, silly, playful kind of content. And, but the big thing is that it moves the, the, the aims and the themes and the ideas espoused in these types of performances shift from a strictly Christological and and Christian viewpoint to something that's a bit more secular, certainly tied to the popular aspects of society. Uh, You know, this is the time period of like the chivalric nature and Geoffrey Chaucer and those individuals. And so they're trying to capture that spirit, but they're also trying to sometimes spin it in a way that makes it a little more scandalous, a little bit more um, fun, a little bit bit more whisper, whisper. Did you see so-and-so talk about that? Can you believe that they uh, did these things? <laughs> all that sort of thing. So, it, you know, the scandal of it all is actually contributes no, but to the I love in- it. interest. You yeah. know, it, it, it sounds like it was in some respects a safe outlet for talking about these things that are human and natural and all of this, but you know, at at least sometimes within the safe guidelines of the ecclesiastical authority, which which was still, you know, really important. Yes. Yes. It was it was the kind of thing where they could they could get away with a few more things in those kind of guises than they could otherwise. Yeah, no, I I I think that that's really fascinating. And you mentioned how important these troops were to the courts and to those in a position to employ such such entertainers. Well, was the sort of the gloss rubbing off at all onto those performers at all? Um, you know, in terms of, of, first of all, sort of their, their reputation, you know, what kind of person did this sort of acting, but also was there any real material upward mobility potential for doing this kind of work in an age when I, you know, my understanding is that options for people not to the manner born to actually pull yourself up and and improve your lot in life were really miserable. Yes. So yes, there is there is a lot of 
opportunity for upward mobility if you prove yourself to be a really popular, really entertaining performer in the context of, say, a troubadour. Um, in fact, the troubadours become well known in terms of con like they're contesting one another. They're trying to be the best of the best. And troubadours in particular, so we're talking about Spain and France in particular, where the troubadours were most active, they would they would kind of specialize in a, in a certain type of uh, troubadour singing. So a canso, for example, is this type of uh, uh, theatrical song and performance that, that you do that is about uh, certain subjects and ideas about chivalric love and courtly behavior and that kind of thing. So you might be really good at, you might be a really good canso troubadour singer and you get known for that. And so if you know, a, a, a local lord or duke or someone like that really enjoys that style of troubadour performance, then they're going to bring you in and they are going to basically patronize you. And this is this becomes, in a way, this is somewhat, you know, the roots of a patron system that becomes prominent within, particularly within Italy, in the later Renaissance of the uh, 15th century. And so, you've got these individuals who are attaching themselves to court. There's a great story about um, Frederick Barbarossa. He's the Holy Roman Emperor in the latter part of the 12th century. Um, a, you know, he's, he, he proves to be a very promising uh, political leader early in his career. And when he first becomes uh, emperor, uh, things kind of taper off after a while. But nonetheless, he remains a very big political force throughout his lifetime. And he becomes really attached with the particular Minnesänger of the German world. And this guy is traveling everywhere with Frederick. He's writing these kind of panegyric, uh, really supportive and kind of uh, propaganda type um, songs and, and performances and putting them together. And people really love him. And he goes on crusade with the fourth crusade, I believe it's the fourth crusade, around 1190 when Barbarossa takes up a crusade to the Holy Land. And they He's, he's accompanying Frederick and he's accompanying Frederick's armies. And so he's entertaining all the guys in this army. And so he's getting popular. He's getting a reputation. And that reputation connects him, him it connects to Frederick Barbarossa and makes Frederick look even better because here's Frederick allowing the men in his, in his army and his retinue to uh, be a part of this great performer's work and see it and experience it. And unfortunately, this particular Minnesänger, he, he dies in a, in a battle uh, not long after the Crusades, the army sets out, and he's actually mourned by the entire army. There's a, they take a moment and they really try to memorialize him and the work that he did. And so he, he's recorded for all time. And unfortunately, I forget his name at the moment, but we know of this individual simply because he was so good at performing. And there are other troubadours and, and itinerant players all around Europe in this time period that, be, that become known because they become I mean, attached. is it like stardom like we can yes. sort of uh, appreciate today? So these were superstars yeah. of their day. <laughs> yeah, I like, to think of, I like to think of them like influencers. That's kind of what they are. Yeah. They're putting together these really quick, easy, digestible, repeatable even performances that really speak to people and speak to a certain moment and they're influencing a larger public for the sake of a particular political figure or some type of authority of some kind. And that's that they use that connection to that, that kind of uh, political power or, or ecclesiastical power as a way to kind of solidify their celebrity status and their ability to be, you know, um, uh, I don't want to 
admired by groups of people. Yeah, whole groups of, of individuals. I mean, you know, I have to say, I, I find that uh, I, on, at one and the same time, both amazing, but I'm not really surprised, right? You know, yeah. <laughs> we, we live in a very of... medieval world today. It's really strange. <laughs> Yeah, and the medieval people lived in a rather modern society in more exactly. ways than we might imagine, which I I, I do want to delve into in, in greater detail shortly. I mean, you're building up a really convincing argument to um to put us in, I I, I think, sort of a surprising place when we when we look at that question of 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 how we perceive the Middle Ages today largely. And you know, is that is that actually um accurate? Mm -hmm. But how I I'm still trying to sort of get my head around how these troops were organized. So there were some that were attached to um, sort of courts, whether ecclesiastical or political. Um, but in terms of these itinerant groups, again, or, or those performing outside of these broader um, forces of, of authority, you know, who was in charge? Who organized these groups? And, and how did someone kind of become a member of one of these troops? How'd you break into this business? That's a great question. And the truth is we don't, for a lot of the more itinerant groups, we don't really know. We don't know how they were organized and we're not quite sure what they, what they did to keep organization within their individual unit. Um, but when you begin to kind of look at the way that other groups of performers begin to organize themselves, you quickly see a, an attachment to an actual type of labor. So a lot of the performing groups of particularly the later Middle Ages, so you have um, things called confraternities and guilds and, and those types of, that we use that kind of vocabulary around uh, groups in France and in England. And a lot of these groups had significant performing uh, members and, and, and parts of their, their bodies that were, were meant to either memorialize or um, broadcast in a very public way what that group was about and what they did. Um, you see these particularly in the Low Countries, um, uh, places along Belgium and France and the Netherlands, uh, in Europe today, these are these are communities that are largely there's a, a lot of them are free cities, meaning they kind of are autonomous urban centers where they are under the um, auspices of say a bishop or even under the control of guilds and, and these labor organizations around the town. And many of them are organizing different types of performances throughout the year, some of which are, are considered to be crucial to the civic identity of that town. Probably the most famous is the York cycle plays of, of late medieval England. And you have these various groups. So for example, the, the pinners and the painters were two guilds that performed the, cru the, play, the crucifixion play at the, at the Corpus Christi cycle every year. So this was about in June of every year in the city of York, you would have, you may be familiar with the term pageant wagon, these you know, rolling stages essentially that would wake, make their way through the town, the medieval town of York through the winding streets and at various places, they would stop and they would do a performance of usually a biblical story of some kind that, you know, from the Old Testament all the way up through the Passion, even the, uh, some, sometimes you even see some eschatological 
aspects of these plays, like the judgment and that sort of stuff. But for example, the crucifixion of Christ is done by the pinners and the painters of this medieval guild in medieval York. And they're putting on display the work that they do. They are the, you know, the pinners are the ones, these are individuals who, you know, basically are responsible for creating the joints between um, major carpentry projects and, and, and even architectural projects as well. They, they are the fasteners and the, the people who um, are, are specifically trained to be able to create sturdy materials and buildings and those sorts of things. And then the painters are what they say they are, they're painters. And it makes sense that these would be the individuals who would do the play of the crucifixion because you need to put Christ on a cross in a secure way. And you need to also lift that cross up and have it wow. pinion itself. Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't have thought of that. That's it's a, incredible. It's exactly. So <laughs> yeah. And so they have to kind of, they have to make it work. And then the painters, wow. obviously you're going to have a lot of red paint. So to really kind of uh, bring out the, the violent, red paint, of course, for the blood, for the blood of Christ when he's <laughs> oh on there. And, gosh. and it's a really, it's, it's a, it's a, actually, it's a very sardonic play. It's very dark humor because you've got these, these individuals who are members of this guild or these guilds, and they're playing soldiers at the crucifixion of Christ, and they are trying to fit Christ's body on the cross, which they have to stretch him out, and they have to basically break his body to get him on the cross, and then they have to do these violent things to him, and the whole time they're complaining about how, how they're working so hard and how hot it is, and they just want to get this over with so they can go home. I mean, typical, like, but nine that's, to five. I mean, that's crazy, but, but, but yet at the same time, I, I mean, how else could you make the story of the crucifixion so relatable exactly. to common laborers who happen to be watching this? Exactly. And, and who couldn't themselves read the stories in the Bible, right? Yeah, the, and you've got counting of this, that it's really kind of astonishing. It is. And you've got so much symbolism at work here because you're talking about the body of Christ and you're talking about the body of believers that make up this city. And they kind of make up, they are the uh, symbol of the body of Christ as, as a Christian community as well. And, you know, but you've got members of this community who you probably know if you're a young kid in medieval York and you might see your uncle up there performing as one of the soldiers who's trying to pull Christ's feet down to be able to nail his feet down to the cross. And then when they, there's a, oh my gosh, it's a really terrible, but also somewhat funny moment where they try to lift the cross up and it's too heavy and they drop it. They drop the cross with Christ on it. And it's just, you know, you, there's this kind of, you, as you're, if you're reading it, you're thinking, oh my goodness, how, how awful, how sacrilegious. But in this day and age, you're talking about people who understand their labor in terms of their connection to their own belief as well. And so it would make sense that pagan, in their minds, have pagan individuals who have no love for Christ, who have no recognition of him as the Messiah and, and, of, and of the divine embodiment on earth, would mistreat him and would, would consider him lesser than or, or, or just consider him a part of their daily labor. And that's just kind of the warning of the play. Like, hey, don't go about taking for granted things like the the mass that you may participate in each week like like when you take the eucharist this is a sacred thing don't let christ's body fall this is a part of the labor of your life that you must you know embody this idea of a good christian who would never treat christ's body like this and 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 there's other aspects to that as well but there ultimately it's it's connecting the kind of daily life and the labor of living 
to the individual, the body politic of a city like York in this time period. And so to get back to what you're asking about the kind of organization of these different groups, you have um, as, as, as guild members or as, as, as members of a confraternity, you've got individuals who are given a very important task and they are organized based upon kind of like uh, seniority within these uh, organizations, um, you know, who tends to have skill sets that fit best with whatever they're trying to perform. And you, you really want to base, basically put on your best face. You want to put on the, the best aspects of, of your, your guild, your organization, so that you can show the community just how vital your organization is to the, the life's blood of that community and its identity as well. And you also want to make sure that you are kind of keeping your, your, org, your members in line. You know, there's, there is policing of things like, um, you know, don't, you know, how much you drink and how given you are to certain vices. And if you are a good Christian, if you go to mass, if you um, confess your sins, if you do all the things that a good Christian does. And so you have the kind of the use of, of a Christian ethics, a Christian kind of ethical construction of, of the way one should, again, perform your life, you know, be a good Christian in, in these various contexts um, that really play into the identity of these organizations, these kind of civic fraternities and the way that they understand their role within society. And so they see that they need to be kind of above it all in a way. They need to have the best individuals as a part of their groups and they need to display a good Christian attitude and behavior in a, in a kind of a daily way. And then that's all reinforced within the performances that they do for different um, celebrations and holidays and things like that. Yeah. Well, and, and I think this is a really refreshing way to approach this, this question about what medieval society actually was like. And so from our conversation so far, you know, uh, there's no surprise that the, the notion of Christian beliefs and enacting those beliefs and performing those beliefs in all these different spheres of daily life, um, ecclesiastical, educational, and, and just even out in public on the streets, right? That th this was critical um, for all people, even common working people. Um, but I'm just struck by the, the sort of I almost want to say freewheeling way in which the theatrical expression seemed to encapsulate all the, these beliefs. And, and I, I, I think this brings us right to where I was hoping we'd end up. I, I, I want to talk a little bit about what modern preconceptions are about the medieval world and where they come from and certainly how they fit into this conversation about the realities of medieval theater? That's such a good question. The, I think that a lot of, and, and I'm gonna make some assumptions about what people might know and might think about the Middle Ages, um, but I think that's kind of what you're asking is that like we got, we have this idea as I mentioned earlier of, of this period being the dark ages. And as a part yeah, of that- stiff and serious yeah. and miserable and, and God was scary and you yeah. never make a joke out of, you know, the crucifixion and, and that's, for yeah. any purpose, right? That, that's it. There's this idea that, that, that uh, the church and, and the church, you know, I, I kind of put that in quotation marks because it seems like the church is this monolithic authority across Europe, basically ruining everyone's fun and telling everybody how to live their lives. And right. that certainly isn't true. It's much more nuanced and more complex than that. But at the same time, you have um, 
you have not only people expressing themselves in ways that they're trying to enjoy their lives and enjoy what they do, but you've got the, the biggest problem for this time period. And I think that the, the challenge of it and the way that we understand it from our perspective here in the 21st century is that it, there's so much that we have to question about the actual evidence that comes from this period. And these and the evidence is largely in two forms. We have archaeological evidence and we have documentary evidence. Now you're the expert on the archaeology, so I, I'm not I'm not qualified to speak there, but I would talk I'll talk about the documentary evidence that we have from this period. And we have everything from, you know, kind of court records and 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 church records, things like, uh, you know, this, the Pope did this today and, and sent out this decree and made, you know, this person uh, an important figure and, and so on and so forth. And then you've got um, like literature, you have poetry, you have songs, you have the liturgy, you have these books that contain uh, liturgical uh, uh sections and segments that would have been done throughout the calendar year of of the lives of these individuals and then you have other documents you know you've got deeds and records and those sorts of things which aren't really exciting things but they can really reveal a lot about this world and what was going on um and so what we really have to do as historians and as modern individuals is question what these documents are actually recording uh, and particularly when it comes to the kind of treatises and, and personal points of views espoused by individuals in the course of doing their jobs. So you have this, you have the example of someone like Gerhard of Reichersberg, who's this individual uh, who's a pro provost and a, and, a, and a chorister, and he lived um, in the 12th century. And he was working in a cathedral school at Augsburg in modern day Germany. And he writes about these theatrical plays and games that these young boys in the cathedral school are putting on. They're, he calls them Herod games and antichrist plays. And basically they're, you know, and, and so they're doing all this kind of diabolical activity within the course of their day and within the actual sacred spaces of the cathedral. And so he's railing against this and saying, look at what we're doing. We're inviting the devil. We're inviting Antichrist. We're inviting these, these uh, anti-Christian individuals into our church by doing these these little plays and these dramas. I mean, and this is frankly what I would have expected to, you know, again, from the exactly. assumptions that you bring to the but, Middle Ages, right? Yes, but at the same time, you have a play like you have the play about the Antichrist happening down the road at Tegernsey as a part of the daily activity of this monastery. At some point they would have performed this. And there's, and they may be performing it every year, maybe every few months, something like that. We don't really know, but you have a play that is written about the Antichrist just down the road from, and about the same time as you've got this other guy, Gerhal, who's railing against these kinds of little performances. And so we have to unpack what is really going on here? Yeah. You know, is Gerhal to be trusted or is the play that we that we have from this monastery to be more indicative of what's going on? Yeah, yeah. It, it's classic. Not what I say, but it's what I do. Right? Exactly. exactly. <laughs> I mean, and, uh, he doth protest too much. It, it, it really raises all sorts of questions, doesn't it? Yeah. And, you know, well, look, the historical record, let's be honest, it is not any sort of given truth in in any time period or culture so 
you know, we have to approach everything with a grain no. of salt. Yes, but but there, for some reason, the Middle Ages, there's all this, and because so much of it comes from church authorities in particular, or the authority even of a lay individual is couched in terms that are theological, that God has has, has put me upon this throne, or God has, has blessed me in these ways, and so therefore he's indicating to a greater polity that I am to be your leader, your, you know, overlord of some kind. And so, it, it, and, and unfortunately, a lot of the bad history that surrounds this time period, the idea that we get of the Dark Ages comes from 19th century historians, individuals who are mm -hmm. looking, who are, who are in the midst of a, na a nationalist fervor in Europe. So you have the unification yeah. of the German states, the unification of the Italian peninsula. You've got the French Republic really kind of trying to reconstitute itself uh, after the revolution and the rise of Napoleon and that kind of thing. And you've got um, the Spanish doing a very similar thing, the UK instituting, England instituting its empire across the world. And right, so you've got right. these nationalist ideas. And so they're looking back and they're trying to find the roots of their national identity. No longer do they connect themselves to Rome and some kind of classical conception of their national history. They're looking to the Middle Ages and, say, and seeing in these kind of um, uh, Germanic cultures that are mixing with the Gallo-Romantic uh, um, cultures at the at the beginning of the Middle Ages, and they're saying, "Oh, you know, if if we're English, we come from you know." And back in the 19th century, it was the conception of the Anglo-Saxons. There's a lot of problematic issues around that term, and I won't get into that. But yeah, that's yeah. still that's there's another, that. That's another whole podcast. That's another story. Yeah, <laughs> but there's that idea of like, oh, you know, this this is where we the English come from, and right. the French are doing that with the Franks, and so on and so forth. And so they're beginning. They're trying to tease out the nationalistic ideas of these plays and they're trying to get them you know in many in many respects they're actually very um suspect of the of the liturgical drama the the very biblical plays because this these are nationalist uh, historians who have a, a respect for secularism and they see professionalism as a part of secularism like what you see in the histories of Shakespeare and so when you have really religious content in your plays it's kind of looked down upon as if oh these people were too dumb to be able to write new mm -hmm. stories and original mm -hmm. ideas and so therefore it re it, or it kind of reinvigorates this concept of this being the dark ages and unfortunately that narrative and that history has had a lot more staying power than it has in other other areas of historical investigation. But I think it's beginning to change. Yeah, it it sounds like the time is ripe for that. And I, I wonder, um, you know, in what ways you think that this topic and, you know, this subject of presenting medieval theater to contemporary audiences how it can compel us to reconsider the way we think about medieval culture Absolutely. and art specifically. Yes, I, a few years ago, I got to direct, I was very, very lucky to direct the uh, 12th century play called The Play of Adam, Jude Adam. Um, it's uh, written, it was written in vernacular. It's one of the earliest vernacular plays of medieval Europe. Um, and it was, so it was written in Anglo-Norman French. We think that it was likely written in either Southern England or Northern France. And the uh, Metropolitan Museum of Art, their medieval wing at the Cloisters in New York City, uh, contracted me to direct this production within a 12th century apse. If you've ever been to the Cloisters, it's beautiful. It's it's three actual- I love the Cloisters. It, isn't it great? It is one of my favorite places in the world. 
big plug for the cloisters if you ever get a chance to go yeah could you quickly just describe it for our listeners who aren't uh, uh, familiar with it and, and what is so extraordinary about it i mean it's associated with the metropolitan museum of art but you know it's but it's, it's, it's a separate really location. something really yeah. unique <laughs> yes yeah, so, so it's its own facility up in the northern part of manhattan um and it is three monasteries three monastic cloisters that were uh, in disrepair in Europe and in the 20th century that started in the earliest part of the 20th century, these uh, individuals like the Rockefellers and, and a few other kind of wealthy um, uh, moguls of, of New York society wanted to buy them. They bought them brick by brick, stone by stone, and they they marked everything as it stood in Europe, and then they packaged it all up, shipped it to the United States and rebuilt these three different cloisters together into one complex. Yeah, tell us a little bit about about how that worked, about how you went about staging this medieval play, the yeah. very first of its of its kind in the vernacular. I mean, it is kind of astonishing to think about it that way. It is, yeah. It was really amazing to work on. So we're we were in the in the part of the cloisters called the Fuente Duena Chapel. This is a uh, an apse and, and nave that was um, brought over from Spain. It is a 12th century structure. So we're doing a 12th century play in a 12th century space, which is just absolutely incredible. Um, and it's not a huge space, but we were able to fit just a little over 100 people. And one of the great things about performing medieval plays and, and looking at medieval plays is that you're dealing with a theatrical culture that, as I mentioned earlier, builds out of existing space a stage for itself. So we're not dealing with kind of the proscenium arch style of theater that we may be used to today, or even a black box space. It's These are spaces that were built for other reasons and then were transformed in the course of performance into a theater. So we're dealing with a, a, a church, a sacred space of some kind, and we are performing this play kind of basically carving out of the, the stone and the religious and, and, and theological significance of this building and, and layering on top of it this new meaning through this play. Now it's called the play of Adam. And there's basically you know, three acts is what I would like to call them. It's not divided necessarily that way by the original manuscript, but in, for all intents and purposes, you have the first part of the play which deals with the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and their expulsion. Uh, right after that, we jump into the story of Cain and Abel, uh, with Cain murdering Abel and then being marked by God and sent out and exiled. And then the last part of the existing manuscript is what's called the Ordo Profitarum. This is a, an actual liturgy, um, means the service of the prophets. And you have these various Old Testament prophets, Elijah, uh, Jeremiah, and, and many others who are coming out. And they're, they're not only quoting scripture, but they're also talking about the Messiah, the coming Messiah, that God has promised salvation through his it's Messiah. It's like the hit parade of early yeah. Christian history. You got all the high points there, right? Yeah, <laughs> but exactly. that's interesting. They jump from Cain and Abel to, to the coming of the Messiah, but that, that's another conversation. Yeah. Oh, there's a, yeah, there's a lot of connect. <laughs> there's a lot of reasons that that may be, but, and then the act, the extant manuscript that, that, that still exists, it only, we only have a couple, but the, the largest one is incomplete. So it's, it's what we call a fragment. We don't know how the play actually ends. We assume that it, it ends with the uh, liturgical, uh, ceremony known as the Annunciation. So this is where the angel, the Archangel Gabriel comes to the Virgin Mary and explains to her that she will be the vessel for 
Jesus, for Christ, for God incarnate on earth. Uh, and so that's that's how we ended this our particular production because it needed an end. You can't just leave everybody hanging. Oh, so we decided no. we would end it on a on what we call a dumb show, something that was performed without dialogue, just music. And it was a, it was an incredible experience because not only are we performing in a medieval space, but we got the chance to really play with staging techniques that are a little different from what modern, modern audiences might be used to. So we're not setting up your audience to view the stage or the playing space like you would a modern theater where there's this distance between the actual performance and the audience. In fact- No, they were walking right through. I mean, I, I, I'll, yes. I'll fess up. I, I watched a clip of this and what struck me more than anything was how modern it felt. I mean, it opened with the devil skipping through the audience, handing out kazoos. Yes. <laughs> make noise. Noise makers. Yeah. Cause we wanted the kids to have I, fun. Cause I, you, I mean, there, there would have been kids. Is that okay. So tell me, is that the kind of thing that would have happened in a medieval performance? I mean, maybe it wouldn't have been a kazoo. It would have been some kind of <laughs> horn or, or, a, yeah. or a little, a little, you know, drum um, or something. Or something. Like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I mean, was that what I would call artistic license from a contemporary uh, taste standpoint? Or do you think that that's actually the level of engagement they would have been likely to have at, at the time this might have been performed? Oh, I absolutely was. I mean, you certainly see this when you talk about those cycle plays from medieval York and all that sort of stuff. You're talking about there's no there's no aesthetic dif distance between the audience and the performance. And, and in many of these plays, there's there's an attempt to bring the audience into kind of the performance in some way. Now, some that doesn't mean necessarily that audience members would get up and perform, but there's places where, so for example, in the play of Adam, in the actual script, you have um, this character. And unfortunately, you know, a lot of medieval drama does have uh, anti-Semitic tone overtones as well as misogynistic ones. And, and that is a complicated thing that, that we do have to find ways to navigate around. But in the case of the um, play about uh, the play of Adam, you have this character that is simply called the Jew in the original script. And this is an individual who stands up and challenges the prophets as they come out and he, and specifically he's challenging the prophet of Elijah. And he's saying, how can you, how can someone be born of a virgin? That's absolute ridiculousness. How it's can a you- It's a reasonable truly... question though. Yes, it, 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 <laughs> so well, and, sorry, I gotta say. <laughs> no, 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 that's exactly the point. And see, that's the, that's the, that's the thing that makes it so challenging to deal with because you have embodied in this Jewish character and, you know, an anti-Semitic representation of Jewishness, the kind of learned theological arguments of the day. And that is a person that would have been most likely been out in the audience and would have spoken up and say, okay, guys, all right, we see you all, but you know, this is all just crap. You know, come on, you're trying to convince me that your Messiah was born of a virgin. And why would God an all powerful God need to bring himself down to earth? I mean, he is asking the poignant questions that were would have were important not only then but today these are the theological apologetic type uh, discussions and arguments that were really becoming a central part of of the learning of that day and and you've got it embodied in this character who would have been kind of in the audience in the mix of all of that as a way to connect him to the community and say hey there are people asking these questions well, how do you it's answer kind of genius in that way because one can imagine and and you know perhaps this is absolutely wrong but you can imagine you don't ask those questions outside mm. of the conceit of a theatrical performance because it's blasphemous to yeah, doubt it, the word of god and so, you know, I, I think it's a, an incredibly 
complex and actually very poignant way in which you know people of the time were able to grapple with these really serious questions without running afoul of of what society expected exactly as i mentioned earlier you know the way one comports themselves as a good christian within their community is important it signals uh, and, you know, an ethical kind of responsible citizen of a particular community. And so when, yes, you're right, when you have these outward displays of doubt and uncertainty, then it, 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 it looks bad. You look bad <laughs> to your neighbors and to your friends and to your family. And so, yes, you're absolutely right. You know, being able to embody that, those questions within a Jewish individual who in medieval society would have been on the margins of that society. They would have lived outside of the town. They were already an outsider. So, you know, a Jewish individual asking those questions uh, both signals kind of the, the way that medieval society looked down upon Jewish communities and Jewish individuals, but also it is the safe way to ask those questions and deal with those issues and in within this larger performative theatrical context. Now for our production, we, we did change that character. Um, we made them a student. We didn't make them uh, a, okay, okay, okay. a Jewish person. That's how we handled it. It was, and, and I think it worked quite well, but we had her out in the audience. And as you mentioned, yeah, the, the, the actors are doing this kind of aisle, it's an aisleway configuration. So they are quite literally moving within the audience, interacting with them directly. And they're actually taking a lot of their inspiration and their impulse as actors from the artwork that's hung in that gallery. So there's a, if, you, if you've ever been to the Fuente Duena Chapel or if you ever go, there's a beautiful wooden crucifix that hangs from the apse of that particular structure. And it's really beautiful. And it's, it's, I think it's a little bit later than the actual date of the church itself. But one of the things that we kept doing in our performance was essentially gesturing to it. So this is a crucifix, Christ on a cross, arms outstretched, nailed to it, head hanging down in kind of contemplation and in, in resolve in some way. And when the devil is tempting Adam or the devil is tempting Eve, um, the actor playing the devil would often actually stand under that crucifix, stretch her arms wide and ask questions of Adam and Eve. And basically there's this beautiful moment where Adam is kind of contemplating what the devil is offering. And, and he's, he's, he's got the, he's staring at, he's in the midst of the audience. He's facing the devil who's right underneath this crucifix with her arms outstretched. And he has this decision to make. And he kind of oscillates his vision and his gaze between the crucifix and the devil, the crucifix and the mm -hmm. devil, as he's, con you know, trying to make this, you know, uh, life or death type decision in terms of what God has established with them and their life in the garden. And so it's, it's a really beautiful way uh, in a modern context to kind of draw from the surroundings. But that same thing would have existed within the medieval world as well. That would have been there. And there's a lot of stage directions actually in that play to indicate some of those things that this would have been performed on the steps of a church and um, you know the way that God would have been represented, or the the um, the Garden of Eden were represented, is kind of in a way mirroring the aspect of like how can you know can are we the performance is actually kind of key in the way of like the community getting into the church, and there's this sense of like we're gonna get we're gonna work our way through all these challenges, all these problems, and then we're gonna make way 
for everyone to go into the church. And, and at the same time, we're going to be in the midst of our community. We're going to hear the church bells ringing. You're going to hear the birds chirping overhead. You're going to hear people talking down on the other side of the square, that kind of stuff going on as a way to really kind of get truly within this community um, and, and connect the issues of gender questions of like uh, uh, the roles of men and women in domestic relationships, which is what Adam and Eve deals with, the questions about labor and farming techniques and, and the agency that one has within their community, if they are a farmer and laborer, uh, how do they, you know, what are they, are they Cain or are they able? That's what that story is dealing with. Mm -hmm. What kind of, what kind of person do you put your labor to? And then at the end, it's the, now you have to be a thinking individual who understands the promise of the Messiah and why Christ is the embodiment of God and, and a part of the salvific uh, plan that God has for everyone. And then you kind of get this sense of like, now we're all here in front of the church. You, you, I wouldn't be surprised if the play ended with everybody going into the church shortly thereafter. What really strikes me listening to you talk about uh, the entire enterprise of medieval storytelling through theater in all of the different venues in which it played out. Sorry, I, I can't resist at least one pun per episode, but <laughs> you know, it, it just brings home to me how important not just key stories are to the human experience, but you know, it makes such a difference how the story is told, doesn't it? Absolutely. You know, that, that's so important to humans as well. I, I just wonder if you could briefly reflect on, on that idea a little bit as it relates to this production. Definitely, because I think that one of the things that really is most fascinating to me about medieval theater and medieval plays and, and the whole world of medieval theatricality is that you're dealing with stories on the surface that seem very, very familiar, even for us today, Bible stories, stories about saints and, and those kinds of things that were really rooted in a Christian tradition and, and a society that was espousing Christian belief. And we have we still have a lot of that today. Um, but the what, what you say about the way that it's kind of packaged, the way that it's performed, the way that the story transforms because of the performance, that's where all the meaning is packaged. And so we can yeah, read yeah, yeah. we can read these scripts. We can read the scripts that survive, and they might seem just a bit flat, a little bit uninteresting, maybe uninventive. Uh, but when you begin to put these plays on their feet, when you begin to connect them with a, an audience and, and a community and a place and a time, um, particularly places that aren't purpose-built theaters, all of a sudden, they take on much more than just the initial story. If you're talking about Noah or Moses or or an aspect of Christ's life, a story from his life. You know, it, yes, the theological implications are there, the kind of Christian belief implications are there, but then there's also the connection of, well, what does it mean for this community? Like, how, does, how, do, how are we to understand our role in this greater story? And that I think is a very modern thing. We haven't lost that. We're still very much participating in the same medieval work of the or the same work of the medieval theater uh, from the past that we're that we have still with us today we haven't lost these things so everything from your independence day parades to uh, santa claus saint nicholas to all of those to your your religious practices even potentially all of this stuff is rooted in 
medieval theater, medieval acting, medieval drama, and we haven't lost that stuff. And we're only, I think we're, we're beginning to revisit the ways in which we toy with stories nowadays, particularly in our theater today, the way that we toy with a common story or a trope, uh, an idea that we see over and over and over again within our theater, within our plays. And we are beginning to try and figure out how to unpack them even within the course of performance to really investigate and interrogate the way in which these plays make meaning by using common stories and tropes that are familiar to us in our culture and scrutinizing them. Sometimes holding them up to the light and saying, ooh, this doesn't look so, you know, Santa Claus is a big consumerist. Is it, That's a kind of an ugly view of, of St. Nicholas and, and who this Santa Claus is. But at the same time- I'm so can, jaded. Oh, I, well, I'm with you. I, <laughs> I was trying not to be too harsh, but yeah. I, <laughs> that's essentially, what, but that's what we do. We kind of unpack it to really say, we scrutinize it and say, well, what are we really doing with the figure like this? Who is yeah, this yeah, person yeah. really to us? And that sort of thing. And that's yeah, yeah. very similar to what's going on in medieval theater. Given all of this and this pretty shockingly direct line we've drawn between medieval theater and contemporary experimental theater, for want of a better word, you know, yes. playing with these familiar stories and tropes, uh, do you have a crystal ball of where you you might see theater going in the future? Oh, that's such a good question and a dangerous one. <laughs> uh, you know, for me, I, well, I will say this. I, I think this past year has has taught us as theater artists, theater practitioners, and theater educators that we have to really consider the stages that we perform on, and, and we have to expand what we consider to be a stage. I think this connects back to my work in, in with medieval theater because, again, you're dealing with, with cultures and societies that quite literally carve a stage out of wherever they are and however they interact. And so nowadays, when so much communication, so much interaction, so much work is done in a digital space, it's done over video conferencing and that kind of stuff, we are beginning to see how digital or virtual spaces are just as you, uh, 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 fabulous for performance as anything else, as an actual physical yeah, stage. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Yeah, we began, we, 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 you know, when I teach theater, well, at least when I started teaching theater, one of the things that I talked about, you know, and I think a lot of theater teachers do this, is that we really promote theater as a special art because it's live. It happens right in front of you. Everybody's in the same space. And, and in a way, we, it's considered immediate meaning that there is, in the true sense of that word, that there's no media between the mm, audience mm -hmm. and the performance or the audience and the work of art. And I think we're going to be, we have to see now that actually theater can be mediated. It's not film because what we do through, say, a Zoom performance isn't film, it's not cinema, but it, it is people in the same space, but just in a different way way of being. They're, they're, they're digital persons. They're no longer physical persons. So there's some kind of mediation going on, but it's still very much theater and it still operates in many of the same ways. And I think we need to be willing as theater people, theater artists, practitioners, educators, we need to be willing to see that space as ripe for theatrical performance. And I think that's where we are kind of grappling with the same things that historically individuals in medieval Europe were grappling with as well. We have kind of the 
I don't want to say the end of one type of theater, but certainly a type of theater that has seen its heyday come and go. And in, in, in the Middle Ages, you're talking about like kind of the Roman, the Greek and Roman type of, of do, way of doing theater. And now we're having to grapple with, well, how do we make this relevant for today? Like, how do we still maybe take some of the same plays and the same way of doing drama, but how do we deliver it and package it for our audiences and our culture and society today and make it relevant and exciting, entertaining for the next generation of audiences so that we can continue to build in theater maintains a, a, its life and its importance within, within the arts and within our culture as well. So I, I challenge my, my fellow theater artists out there, you know, to think about that kind of work through in the digital space that you may be doing in your everyday life, but how can you also kind of translate that for performance for audience, audiences today? Oh, yeah. No, I, I think it's really such a great point. And you know, once again, I mean, we all are so, I think COVID exhausted at this point, but, you know, there's just not really an arena of modern life and communication and how we interact with one another, much less just comport ourselves in our own daily lives that, that hasn't kind of uh, involved this project of just as you described the, the, the act of, of, of performance where you're sort of playing with common and familiar accepted tropes and stories and seeing them in a new light. I think that's very much what's happening today across the board. And I, I love the idea that, that we can um, see some progress, if we can call it that, in, in our conceptions of theater and, and how it is performed. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us, Kyle. This was so interesting and we'll be sure to pass along links to that terrific performance of the play of Adam, which you were involved with up at the Cloisters and the Metropolitan Museum of Art just a few years ago. Thank you so much. Well, this is wonderful. Thank you for having me. Much as it surprises me to say it, it's kind of hard to overstate how much we owe to the theatrical works created and enacted in the Middle Ages. Medieval theatricality seeped into all spheres of life, from the spiritual to the professional to the personal. Though many contemporary theatrical works were grounded in religious themes and imagery that may seem stiff and deeply alien to our secular selves in 2022, more striking are the timeless aspects of the human condition that emerge from them. Most notable, perhaps, is the idea of performance as an opportunity to rebel, to push against the cultural and political boundaries of one's time. I mean, think about it. A medieval peasant fed up with his position at the bottom of the pecking order would be summarily imprisoned, at best, were they to stand up and recite a set of grievances against church doctrine in the village square or just protest to what society dictated was appropriate behavior. But as Kyle described it earlier, even in those supposedly dark days, theater provided a kind of interstitial safe space for people to literally act out without fear of retaliation from the very institutions they critiqued. Medieval theater, just like modern theater, was that rare forum in which people could not only be wholly expressive, but openly subversive. Thanks for listening. Hey there. You can follow today's guest at Kyle A. Thomas on Twitter. 
That's Kyle underscore A underscore Thomas. Apart from teaching and performing, Kyle also co-hosts the Teaching Drama podcast, which explores the fascinating dynamics of theater education. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your audio content. You can also learn about his forthcoming book, The Play About the Antichrist, Ludus the Anticristo, a historical exegesis, performance dramaturgy, and Latin edition, on his social media or website, kyleathomas.net. As always, thanks so much for listening to another episode of Working Overtime. For show updates and additional content, follow us on Twitter at WorkingOTSeries. Working Overtime is part of the Little Fire Podcast Network and is made in collaboration with Past Preservers. Today's episode was recorded live across the globe over Zoom. It was produced by Karen Bellinger, Nigel Hetherington, Aidan Law Liberty, and Raz Cunningham. Our director was Raz Cunningham. Follow us on social media for additional content and show updates at Working OT Series on Twitter and Working Overtime Series on Instagram. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button. Thanks so much for listening.